I can't think of a better platform for us to launch a ministry out of than the gospel. And I want to talk this morning again back to our idea of Family Connect, which I hope will be the platform at which we base our ministry as Christ Chapel out of, that the home, your home, becomes the central context of how Christ Chapel does ministry, not this stage. I want that to sink in with you. Think about that. And I can't think of a better gospel to do it out of than the book of Mark. You see, the fulcrum or the pivotal or central point of what we are, how we move, should be the gospel. The story of God's never-ending, never-quitting, always and forever love, this love that pursues a broken and rebellious bride should be the story that not only marks our lives as different and attractive to others, but it should be the genesis from where our life finds meaning and direction. And I can't think of a better time than at Christmas, the greatest display of God's love and affection for us. Because every religion, every other attitude, every other effort would tell you that you have to be strong enough, that you have to be smart enough, that you have to be good enough, that you have to be well enough, that you have to be whatever it is to be what it is. Or if just whatever's in your heart, you can be that. But that is contrary to the gospel because the gospel doesn't say just whatever's in your heart, be it. The gospel says Jesus came down as the form of his Father, the very divine God of heaven who created everything for us to see and know who God is that we may walk in relationship with him. This is the God who came to us. There's no mountain we have to climb, amen? There's no ladder we have to climb. God came to us. And so I can't think of a better reason, and I can't think of a better gospel than to launch this out of than the book of Mark. Now, um, Mark is probably like the least familiar gospel to everybody. I got to admit, it is my favorite gospel. It's probably my favorite book in the Bible. And it's, it's for weird, obscure reasons, but I love it. And the reason why I love it is, is here is a young man who was taught by both Peter and Paul who went on a missionary journey with Paul. Could you imagine getting to go on a missionary journey with Paul? I, don't, I, I, I could not imagine. I could not imagine walking with a man who is so anointed by God that when he speaks, things happen, that people are healed by a shadow. I can't imagine with, with Peter, they're taking little cloths and they're handing them out so people can be healed. Like We're seeing, like, he saw these amazing things happen. And here's this guy who gives us the account of the gospel. One reason why I love the book of Mark is because Mark got to live the book of Acts. Think about it. Mark's mother was Mary, not Mary the mother of Jesus, but another Mary. Another Mary who finds a very important part in Scripture. Because there was a, a young man who loved God, who made a lot of mistakes, who messed up. His name was Peter. A lot of us can identify with him. And one of the mistakes he didn't make was preaching the gospel. But it looked like a mistake because it got him put in jail. And so here is Peter sitting in jail by himself, and the angel comes and opens that and says, come on, leads him out. He thinks he's just dreaming, and he walks out, he's walking, finds himself in the street, and he's like, whoa, what's going on? And so he goes and he knocks on the door of a house. And at this house, they happen to be having a prayer meeting. You know whose house this was? It was Mary's house. You know who Mary's kid is? Mark. And so I can't think of a better gospel to come out of when we talk about doing ministry in your home than a young man who grew up with a ministry happening inside his home. With a small group and a prayer meeting that, that shook hells, that shook prison cells, that broke chains. Now, I've never been in one of those, sorry. I would love to. I have prayed for it. I've never seen it. I've never been in a prayer meeting and somebody knock on the front door and then everybody freaked out because the prayer was answered. <laughs> but I would love to. But Mark did. He lived it. 
And so when we talk about this idea of family connect, the question is, is what do you want me to do, right? That's the, that's the question that we come to. It's like, what do you want me to do? And we're really good at, you give me what to do and I will go do it, right? Anybody else with me? No, most of you get the stuff from Ikea and then you try to put it together and then you read the instructions after it fails, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you see, for two people to walk together on a journey, where you start is as important as where you end up. Think about it. If I give you a map and I say, you go this way and then you turn right and you go this many directions and then you turn to left and you go this far and then you, you, you make another left and then you go this far. If we don't start at the same spot, we end up in two different directions. We end up at two different locations. So where we start is as important as where we're going. So this morning, I want us to look at where we start. Because we know where we're going. We're going to pursue the lost. We're going to disciple the found. We're going to mend the broken. And we're going to send the whole. But where we start is the gospel. The gospel becomes the center, civil, the central point, the pivotal point of where ministry flows and happens. And there's three main things to the gospel that I want us to make sure we grab hold of. One is that who Jesus is. That we understand the gospel story of his never-fading, never-ending, unstoppable love for you and for me and for this world. I think sometimes we lose sight of that, don't we? Come on, let's be for real. Sometimes we believe the first lie in the garden. Oh God, do you really love me? Is this really for my good? Is this really right? God, are you withholding from me because you don't like me, you don't love me anymore? Come on, we have those. We hear the enemy do it, send that to ears, right? You've had those moments, right? And that's why it's important we keep coming back and understanding and seeing that there is Jesus who is the outflow, the expression of God's unending love for you. The second thing is this who we are in Christ, that Christ came and we have an identity in him. Like we have a purpose, we have a function, we have a meaning, we have a design specifically to your life and to my life that he has created and he wants to set you in it. Like there's a reason why you're here. His work in me is shaping and forming me. It says about who we are versus what we do. And see, that's the difficult thing this morning in launching a ministry because I can tell you what to do and you can go do it and we could actually be successful and that's the scary thing. The scariest thing to me in ministry is that we can make a plan, move forward, and be successful. Because if success comes in the world's eyes outside of God's plan and purpose, then we've missed it. Because success for God may be sitting in a prison. Success for God may be that there's only five people huddled together worshiping the Lord. Because the American church idea of success is we've got to fill the biggest venue and have the biggest show and the biggest expression. And that may be success. It may be. I don't know. I think what Billy Graham did was very successful in God's eyes. I think what Charles Spurgeon did was very successful in God's eyes. And many people came to hear the gospel preached. But I also think that there's a danger that we might could slip into that we can become successful in the world's eyes but miss the mark of Jesus for this church, for our lives. You see, we're human beings, not human doings. Let that sink in. We're human beings, not human doings. And the work of Christ in us is to shape us into a being that he can use, not a doing that accomplishes a task. You see, Jesus would call us light. He would say that we are the light of the world. Light is something that is, not something that does. Light will light up a dark space, but light is not 
lighting up a dark space. Light is the thing that goes forth. And the third thing I want you to catch is his passion for his bride. Jesus is passionate about his bride. If you catch anything in Scripture as you read over and over through the Old Testament, read the book of Hosea if you don't think that God is passionate about his bride. Read the book of Isaiah if you don't think God is passionate about his bride. Read the Gospels for crying out loud if you don't think God is passionate about his bride. He is passionate about his bride. You see, the difficulty here is that the church can easily become a religion for winners instead of a shelter for the weak. And this is why many people drop out of church. Because their lives don't look like they're winning. Because their lives don't look like a success. Their lives don't look like they've got it all together. But it's too easy to paint a picture on the platform that everything's perfect, isn't it? You see, the difficulty is that church become a, a religion for winners. And I think this is one thing that Mark really wants to make light of in here because he makes this huge contrast between the scribes and the Pharisees and everybody else. Because you got the scribes and the Pharisees who had made religion for winners. The people who could get it all right. And they were the police for it. You had to do this and do this and do this and do this. And if you did that, you got it right and God honored it. And here's Jesus on the scene showing something totally different. So the question this morning is, what is a disciple? In the Old Testament, he would put it this way. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Now, see, when we think of disciple, like, what is a disciple? We think, oh, well, someone who reads their Bible and someone who prays. And we think about all these doings, right? We think about someone who does X, Y, Z. Well, a disciple is someone who, who spends time in prayer, who tells others about Jesus, who, who, who takes care of this and does this. And that we put together a list of doings. But if you read through your Old Testament scripture, God would say, here's what my disciple looks like. Here's what a follower, here's what a child of heaven looks like. I will be your God and you shall be my people. You know how I know this? Because God says, I'm the God of covenant. And if you want to be with me, if you want relationship with me, then it comes through covenant. And it's a covenant on my terms. I issue the covenant to you. This is the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see something a little different. Because Jesus comes on the scene and he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Who is the one doing anything in this? It's Jesus. You come to me, and I will give you rest. He would also say, my sheep hear my voice, and they know my voice, and they follow me. This is discipleship in the New Testament. It's personal. It's relational. It's face-to-face -face with Jesus. You see, it's easy, it's for us to give a list of what a disciple looks like. It's hard for us to say, well, a disciple follows Jesus. Well, what does that look like? Whatever Jesus wants to look like, well, what does that look like? Right? Come on, it, that's who we are, right? That's the tendency within us. Give me something to do and I'll do it. Now, I don't know if even you're, I don't idle well. I, I, one thing I tell about myself is like, I, I feel like I'm built like a race car. A race car doesn't idle. It's, it's, it's built to rev high and go fast, right? And so I find it hard to stop and sit on the couch and do nothing. I find it hard to pause in life. And uh, having a little girl has been helpful in that because it's caused me to go, okay, push all that. Let me stop and focus in on this. And I, I remember one time that uh, I was just having my devotional time. And I remember... Um, God just will show up and speak to you in random times, right? And a lot of times he'll just show up and speak to you to drive you to a, a time with him. And he doesn't ask your permission, he just kind of shows up. And I was actually listening to a Jack Johnson song, and 
He's not a worship guy. He's not religious <laughs> in no way. And at the end of this song in the recording, he's talking about surfing. And he goes, you know, the, the best principle I learned in surfing was that you just had to feel the moment. And he did it in the whole surfer lingo, you know. And at that moment, it was like God just spoke into my heart. Can you live in the present? Can you live in the present? Like, no, I can't. I'm living in the future. I'm thinking about what's next. I got to think about what's on the next list to do. I got, I've got my list and I've got to go to the next one. I got to finish this one and get to the next one. He goes, no, can you live in the present? And I remember I spent several months after that just letting that resonate and sit in my heart. And I would sit down and I'd go, okay, God, what does present look like? I don't even have a clue what present looks like. So I would make myself list because I know what a list looks like, right? Anybody with me? You know what a list looks like? And so i make a list. All right, who is present in my life right now? And I'd make a list of people's names. And I'd go, okay, this is what present means. It's a name. And it was hard to do that. But at that moment, what discipleship looked like was, hey, pause. Slow down, Speedy. There's something else I'm doing. You're ahead of me. You're not with me. Slow down. Because at a different time in your life, it'll look different than another time. Remember when I was in college, I got on this kick where I collected records. Have you ever done that? I just go to like yard sales and thrift stores, and I had a huge stack of records, and I was kind of proud of my little record collection. And I remember I was in a church service one day, and God said, Destroy him. Get rid of him. I'm like, what? There's a Beatles. Like, I've got a Beatles album. He's like, no, I want you to let go of him. I go, God, I got some like Cretus Clearwater. It's pretty cool. Three Dog Night. I've got some records that people would like to have. He goes, get rid of them. God, I can't do that. Like, I could sell these and get some money. He goes, if you need money, I got you covered. But I want you to get rid of them. And I remember wrestling with God, getting rid of my stack of records. It wasn't because of the records. It was because I had made a monument of these stupid records. It was like, I'm so cool because I collected all these cool records, and I got a record you don't have. And God said, it's causing pride in your life. You need to get rid of it. You see, discipleship looks different for the different season of who you are, of where you're at with God. And so to put a list to what a disciple is doesn't measure up to what God is doing. Because being a disciple is really about living in the present. It's living in the present with Jesus. Now that was just my introduction, sorry. <laughs> As you can tell, I'm excited. Now, I've already, I just want to let you know, I've already cut my sermon in half this morning. <laughs> uh, I do love sharing the gospel. I do love preaching. I do love uh, this moment to get to do this. I'm so thankful that Pastor John lets me do this. I'm so thankful that you as a church let me do this. I'm so thankful that you would sit and listen. And I hope that what happens this morning is God speaks into your heart, life-giving, life-producing words. Amen? And so I'm going to pause and I want to pray over the rest of this sermon. I know I kind of jumped in and went going. That's just me. That's who I am, race car, right? <laughs> so dear Heavenly Father, I do want to just come and pause right this morning uh, because I don't know how to. And I don't know how to wait upon you. I don't know how to slow down. So God, I need you to lead me. I need to come to your cross. I need to pause. I need to wait in the weight of what you're doing. And I need to surrender and let you do. Because this is about what you're doing, not about what I'm doing. This is about who you are, not what I can achieve. This is about what you've done, what you've purposed through my life, through our lives. So Lord, I pray you let this Word, penetrate our hearts this morning that we may be shaped with a pliable heart to what you want to do. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
So the title of my sermon this morning is Prepare Him Room. And it's, it's December, right? So we've got to be in a Christmas theme, right? But yet we're coming out of the book of Mark, and there's no Christmas narrative in the book of Mark, is there? <laughs> this is another reason why I like Mark, because he just jumps in, right? He just goes for it. So I want to do a little recap, a little bit of what we've been through. I, I've, I'm kind of on this, I want to do a series through the book of Mark, and I just want to teach on it. I love reading it, so I want, to, I want to hope you catch the passion that I have for the book of Mark, and I hope you'll go home and you'll read through it, and you'll take your personal devotion time and study the book of Mark. And so Mark starts off, and for the gospel to be good news, it must enter a broken place. Like, for something to be good news, it must invade brokenness. It must come upon something that's broken. You can't have good news like, if you were a billionaire and I said, hey, here's $1,000, you'd be like, oh, yeah, okay. I've got thousands of dollars. I don't need, I mean, yeah, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> but if you got no money and I go, hey, here's $1,000, you're like, yeah, <laughs> right? For it to be good news, it's got to enter a broken place. And so the condition of Israel is a very broken condition. It's very messed up. And so here comes Jesus. And Mark then begins to show us the deity of Christ. Like the deity of Christ is shown in his obedience. That he would come and humble himself and be baptized. Like he would come and he would take on humanity as obedient. And then he shows us a wilderness journey that Jesus begins to take and that so that we may know and understand that the wilderness wasn't to destroy Christ, it was to prove him. Christ went into this wilderness not to be destroyed by Satan or by his, his flesh or by the circumstances or by the wild beast, but he was there to be proven as Messiah. And that God will take us into our wildernesses so that he may prove himself rich in us. The wilderness isn't to destroy, but it's to prove who Jesus is. And then he calls his first disciples, and we see that it doesn't diminish their work, but he elevates their work. He comes to a group of fishermen, and he says, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He doesn't diminish who they are as people. He takes it, and he elevates it for his purpose. Everything that those men had learned in fishing was what God was going to use to prepare them to launch them into their ministry. And for you, I, I, I hope you got it when, we, when I preached it and you saw that in your life, God has been shaping and forming who you are so that you can be a platform on which the gospel goes forward because you were the parable. And then Jesus begins a series of ministries within homes. And it's interesting, like Mark, he goes, and Jesus taught in the synagogue, and then he goes, and Jesus was at a home, he was at a home, and 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 a home, and a home, and a home. And you see that Jesus keeps showing up in people's houses. Most of the time it's uninvited. And so I believe then, and I see, and what I hope you can grab is that the theme of Mark begins to take shape around this idea of make room for Jesus. Because Jesus is coming. Clear out the old. Whatever it is in your life that has kept you, that has blocked you, that has barricaded you from Jesus, he is coming to remove it so that you may enter into relationship with him. See, Mark spends no time on the Christmas narrative. Christ just shows up, and he shows up in the most unexpected way. For one, he's obedient to his Father. He's on a mission from God, and he invites us into his work, for this is why we were created. And Mark only gives one announcement of Christ's coming, and that's through John the Baptist, and he says, prepare the way. Make room. God is moving in. God is coming. You see, God is coming, and this is an invasion. 
Mark wants you to see that God is coming and it is an invasion. This isn't a baby born in a manger. This isn't a, a, a nice, good-looking dude who comes walking down the street that everybody's friend with. No, Jesus comes and he shows up and he's here and he's now and he's present. And he moves in. You see, we would prefer a Messiah who comes in strength, right? We want a cuteness of a baby or, or maybe we want our Savior to be a Santa Claus. But what is harder to swallow is a Messiah who comes not in a palace, but in a manger. A Messiah who leads an ar no army, but sheep. Who rules not from a throne, but a cross. You see, we prefer, and I prefer, a gospel that conforms to us, that gives us consideration for our needs, that makes us a better version of ourselves. Yet, the gospel of Mark gives us a Christ who comes with no invitation, but rather an invasion. And this is the good news. But we don't like that word, do we? We don't like invasion. We don't like this idea that God would just come in and take control of our lives. Now, if you're a man in this room, you, you get this idea of invasion. Well, if you ever lived single before you got married, you get this idea of invasion, right? I remember... Um, <laughs> I, I had some time I was single before I got married to Brooke, uh, and it's been really good for me, trust me. Um, and I had a, I remember I had this little Christmas tree, it was about like this tall. Somebody had given to me, it was like a throwaway that somebody had given to me. It, it made Charlie's Brown Christmas tree look good. And so it sat on the coffee table, like that was it. And it had a couple of little plastic shiny balls that half of them were scratched up and they didn't even look good. And that was the Christmas tree. <laughs> Man, you know what I'm talking about because you had that couch that, ha that needed to be thrown away that you picked up off the side of the street that your wife said, no, we're done. This is out. <laughs> right? You know what an invasion looks like. In fact, you'll go home today and you'll see your house and you'll see Christmas has invaded your house. Right? Like, we know what this looks like. But we don't like it. You know why? Because that means that we got to start letting go, don't it? You see, this is the theme of Mark. God is at work, and he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And the purposes of God will go forth. It will invade every area of life. And he will not be stopped. And through the book of Mark, you will see series after series after series of things that are intended to stop Christ. Barriers and, barriers and obstacles. He goes through a wilderness which is meant to destroy him. He meets opposition on every turn. And he finally ends up on a cross. And yet none of this stops the unwavering love of God. Nothing keeps him from pursuing his bride. Nothing can stop Jesus. And you'll see this parallel that Mark creates this dichotomy that he presents to us in his book of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and then every Adams. You see, the scribes had created barriers between people and God. If you want to be religious, if you want to get to God, then you got to do this and you got to do it the right way. And you'll see he comes against them. The Pharisees and the scribes are always attacking Jesus. Why do you do this? Why do you let this happen? Why do you... Why are your guys not fasting? Why are they eating on the Sabbath? Why are they doing this? Why are they, is this going on? And you'll see this constantly come up. But he is coming for his bride, and nothing can stop him. You see, the Bible story is not about a God that invades, invites us to attend an event. He didn't create an event and then invite you to it. The biblical story is of a God who pursues his rebellious but shamefully guilt-ridden children in the garden. And he pursues them to provide them with a sacrificial clothing to cover their nakedness. And he promises to end evil forever. The gospel story is a story that chooses a man for no reason other than God's sheer love. That and through this man's barrenness, that God would bring forth a nation of people and set them apart 
as a blessing to be a blessing to the world. And then he would take that group of people and he would bring them to a land. He would be, they would be brought into the family of God and have a place to call home. And from that place, the world will be blessed. It's about a God who jealously comes after his bride. A God who pays for her ransom with his own blood. Who wipes away her guilt and restores her beauty. This is the gospel. The gospel is making disciples and the gates of hell will not prevail. Amen? This is the good news. If God is for us, no weapon formed against you shall, for we are more than, yeah, you see, this is good news. This is good news. This is what Mark wants you to see. You know why? Because Mark lived the book of Acts. <laughs> Mark saw a guy sit in prison who the, the strongest government in the world thought they had him locked up. And an angel just walks in and says, come on, man, this ain't for you. I got something else. God's got a different plan for you. And he walks out. And if that ain't enough, he gets to tell the story. Here's the story of Paul talking about the the jail cells shaking. Can you imagine? Listening to Paul talk about the jail, begin, the jail begins to shake and the doors come unhinged. The gospel is making disciples. And Mark wants us to answer two questions here in chapter 2. All right. <laughs> well, second introduction, I guess. All right. Well, the rest of this should go fast. In chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their heart. Now catch this question. What does, why does this man speak like that? And so here is one of the questions that Mark wants you to see and he wants you to wrestle with and he wants you to answer. Why does this man speak like that? Why does Jesus speak like this? Son, your sins are forgiven. They said, for he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Bingo. And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sons are forgiven, or say, Rise up, take up your bed, and walk? Now catch this. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise up. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorifying God. We never saw anything like this. And then he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. This would be Matthew. We understand him as Matthew as well. Sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many, uh, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, here's the second question. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need for a physician. But to those who are sick, I came not to be, to call the righteous, but the sinners. Or you could say, I came not to lead a religion for winners. 
but to be a shelter for the weak. And so why does he speak like this? And why does he eat with them? Four things, I think, to that. If we want to answer these questions, I think the answer comes in this. One, it's listen. Why does he speak this way? Why does he sit with sinners? So that we may listen. So that we may let his words penetrate our hearts. As he looks to the scribes, he says, why do you question within your hearts? He says, here's the root of the problem. Your heart is dark. Your heart is wrong. Your heart is what needs to be changed and transformed. Listen to his words. Let them penetrate our hearts because Christ has the authority. And he speaks with authority. Now remember, this is Mark who was taught by both Peter and Paul who would have heard their stories over and over again, who would have heard the testimonies of Jesus being and God being rich in them. And this is the guy who heard the story of Peter saying that Jesus spoke to him and said, you will betray me. And Peter said, no, no, God, I got your back, man. I'm not going to do that. And he goes, no, you will. You'll do it three times. Peter's like, oh, come on. I'll go to the end with you. And then what happens? Peter betrays him three times, and he's broken sorely in his heart. But you know what the beauty of the testimony of the picture is? Is that Peter was a, walked through that so that Peter could stand on the other side and go, oh, I know what it is to be restored. I know what it is to have my Jesus come to me and say, Peter, it's okay, I forgive you. Peter, it's okay. You know you messed up, but guess what? I'm going to restore you, and you're going to go forth. And then he stands at the day of Pentecost, and he preached, and the, God, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on people. And I'm sure he's thinking, this is not what I thought. This is not what I had in mind, but this is awesome. This happened to Peter so that he would not take himself so seriously, but rather that he would take God seriously. We need to listen to Jesus and let his word penetrate our heart. Understand what he's doing because he speaks with authority and the things he says will happen. They will go forth. They will not be stopped. The second thing is he speaks life. He gives freedom. This is what Jesus does when he speaks. It's life-giving. It gives freedom. It sets the captives free. And the third thing is the gospel transforms our lives. This is why we need to listen to Jesus, because he speaks with authority, because he gives freedom, and because the gospel will transform our life. The second reason we're to ask these questions and to ponder them is so that we may understand why he came. And he completes it at the end of this section with saying this, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light. Jesus understood why he came, and he constantly told the people. The third reason I think Mark wants us to, to wrestle this question is because people matter to God. This is why Jesus came. Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is why he came. And if we would listen, he would tell us this is why he came. And this is why he comes into our hearts. And this is why he comes into our church. And this is why he comes into our city. The righteous one, my servant, may make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He understood why he came, and he wants us to understand why he came. He pursues the one, the individual. He brings in the lost and the disenfranchised, those that are held at a distance by the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, this was the problem the Pharisees and the scribes had. Because Jesus was giving access to these people who didn't deserve access. He was making a way for these people. And Mark wants you to see that there's two main characters in this story. You have the scribes and the Pharisees, and you have the four men who would rip apart a roof to put someone in front of Jesus. 
You have one group of people who put up barriers to block people from Jesus. And you have another group of people who are ripping them down and tearing them apart so that they can get them to Jesus. What compassion do you have to have in your heart to rip a roof apart to put someone in front of Jesus? The other thing I hope we see in this story this morning is that not only do we need to understand who Jesus is, not only do we need to wrestle these two questions, and understand that God is coming and he will not be stopped, but God is coming, he will not be stopped so that we may live the book of Acts, church. Mark writes his gospels because he lived the book of Acts and he wants you to live the book of Acts with him. He wants your church, our church, he wants the church of God to live the book of Acts. The book of Acts has two great distinctives and two great directives. One is to preach the gospel, and the two is this, the second is to live the gospel. But you cannot live the gospel if you will not preach the gospel. You see, our business is to show that the gospel is intended for sinners. That it is, has its eye to the guilty person. The grace of God has not been sent into the world as a reward for those who are good and those who are excellent. This is not a religion for winners. Does it come for those who think that their works will merit God's blessings? It's not for those who will do something and ask God for the, the blessed. It's intended for the lawbreakers. It's intended for the undeserving, for the ungodly, for those who've gone astray, for the lost sheep, the ones who've left their father's house like the prodigal. Christ died to save sinners, and he justifies the ungodly. Church, this has to be our starting point. This has to be what gets us motivated in the mornings when we wake up. You see, there would be no need for a manger if there wasn't a tree in the garden. The gospel looks centerward. If there's no transgression, there's no covenant of grace. You see, grace is, we understand this, and this was probably a little, I'll do a little theological breakdown here for you, these, the covenant of grace and what this looks like and how it means. And, we understand grace to be unmerited, right? We get something we didn't deserve. But the bigger thing is that grace isn't just unmerited, it's, in, it's impugned. Do you know what that word means when it says it's impugned? That it's pressed upon you, that it's put upon you. In other words, it's not something that you ask for, it's something that's given. Now, I don't know about you, but my experience with God was more like Paul on the Damascus Road. I wasn't a young man, I grew up in church, but I wasn't a young man who just grew up in church and just loved Jesus, no. I had a wicked heart. I had a broken heart. I had a rebellious heart. I had a mocking heart. My heart was messed up, but then one day, God, without an invitation, showed up and said, wait, I'm changing you. Wait, I'm doing a different work in you. Wait, I've got a purpose on your life. I was minding my own business. In fact, I was happy yet miserable at the same time. I had ran from God. I did not want nothing to do with God. But God said, wait, I have everything to do with you. And it was a grace that pursued me and chased me down and ran me over. And I was left me to turn to that grace and fall down in tears, flooding down my face, love Jesus. But it was a grace that pursued me. It was a grace that was impugned upon my heart. You see, his spirit works without asking. For he tells us to go wait in the upper room, right? Wait in the upper room and I will pour out my spirit. There wasn't no way, there wasn't an invitation, there was a command. So 
See, the gospel issues no invitation, only in an announcement to prepare the way. He is coming, and no force on earth can stop his love. He will pursue his lost sheep. He will free the slave. He will lift up the downtrodden. He will mend the broken. He will redeem the unworthy, for he has ransomed his bride with his own blood. The question this morning for us, church, for those who have been overcome by his grace, is not whether or not we will overcome. The question is, will we break the yoke of oppression for others? Will we tear down the barriers? Will we unburden the weary? Will we be the shelter for the weak, the orphan and the widow? Will we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice? Will we do life together? And when we, the church, understand that the work the work of God, we understand the work of the church, for they are the same. The mission of God gives shape and substance to life and to the work of the church. I heard a pastor say, God doesn't have a mission, he has a church. <laughs> because this mission and this church are one and the same. We must catch his passion for his bride. There are two people that Jesus pursues and chases after in the gospel. The first of those are the disenfranchised of Israel. They're the people of Israel who have lost touch with God. Church, there are people in this room this morning, I guarantee you, who have lost touch with God. And they sit in this building this morning. There are people that you know that, that are aware of God. They're awake to God, but they are not in church. I wrestled a long time with this idea of, do I have to show up on a church on Sunday morning to be a Christian? The answer is, no, I don't have to show up at a church on Sunday morning. But the answer is also, I have to be in fellowship with believers to be a Christian. The best and the easiest place for you to do that is here. But this is just the launching pad. This is just the start. This is just the beginning. Because it should happen here and it should transcend to your home throughout the week. There should be something that starts here and then it should move into your house throughout the week. And if you're a parent and you're not discipling your kids, it's not up to Pastor Steve to disciple your kids or Pastor Chris. It's up to you as a parent. My greatest joy and hope as a parent is that I will get to pray with my child the sinner's prayer. I praise God for Pastor Steve, Pastor Chris, who chase after your young people, who chase after your children, who pursue them with the gospel. But it's up to you, parent. It starts there. It's up to you with your siblings who may be lost. It's, it's up to you with a family member that's wayward. It's up to you at church. Like, guys, this gospel has to burn in us and it has to spread out of us, but it has to start with the people of God who are close to us. And if we will not gather together and let the fire kindle in our hearts, it will never escape this room. If we won't gather around a table and let the word of God kindle us together, then it'll never carry out of this, it'll never carry to this city. And this is a broken city. But you know what's beautiful about a broken city? It's the perfect place for the gospel. the perfect place for the gospel. You don't think this city's broken? Talk to our guys who are in law enforcement here. Several times I talk with Ty, like, hey, can you come play keys this week? He goes, well, if, if there's not a murder. I'm like, man, really? We need to change that. You see, the church participates in God's mission for the gospel to transform lives by proclaiming to all people the good news of God's love. 
offering to all people the grace of God in both words and at our table. A calling to people to be discipleships, disciples in Christ. And again, this is an invasion. Yes, it's true that much of the gospel of Mark will deal with how this invasion upends our expectations, revealing a Messiah who rules from a cross and not a throne. It will demand a deep and sacrificial response on our part. Now at the beginning, let us note how the good news begins with an invasion. At God's initiative, the bus has left the station. Get on or get out of the way, right? Yes, get ready. Good news is coming, and it's coming like fire. God is going to do a work in this city, church. God is going to do a work in hearts and lives. God is going to. Nothing will stop it. The question for us, church, are we going to get on his bus? Are we ready to yoke with him? Are we ready to tie up with Jesus and do his work? I know many of you are. And to that I would say, let's keep going. Don't grow weary now. Don't lose heart now. Don't become distracted by the enemy now. Don't lose focus now. I'm going to bring this to the close with some words of Charles Spurgeon. This is on Isaiah 61. I'll read you. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is, as you remember, this is what Jesus announced in the synagogue when he started his ministry in the other gospel. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, being Jesus, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And understand, this vengeance is upon evil, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. 